2: And welcome to TV Radio. Coming up in your program, Ghana ceased to be a daily language in the 1890s with the last speaker passing away in 1927. Now, Ghana has been nearly fully revived with dozens of speakers. In the program today, we have a conversation with two academics from the University of South Australia working on the revival of Ghana language. On NITV Radio today, we also have a selection of stories shared by NITV, including the story of the First Nations Gems Cultural Gathering ahead of the National Women's Rugby League Championships later this year. This week, not this year. It's just in a few days. Also, in the program, we'll be joined by Wiradjuri woman and science and technology editor Ray Johnston, shining a light on the latest developments and discoveries in science and technology. But first, the latest news on NITV radio, and we are broadcasting from NAM on the Kulin Nation this Wednesday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandami, Gaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day
0: 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected
3: outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've
4: walked this land so many times before anybody came.
0: I am sorry.
2: In this bulletin, traditional owners, researchers and policy makers discuss the urgent need to improve indigenous water access and control. Prime Minister Antony Albanese confirms the Quad leaders' meeting will not go ahead next week in Sydney. And an investigation into a fire in New Zealand which killed at least six people is expected to begin. Traditional owners are meeting researchers and policy makers in Canberra to discuss the urgent need to improve indigenous peoples' access and control of, over water in Australia. It follows an announcement by the federal government last month that new funding would be put forward to address disparity in water ownership. Professor Peter Yu is a Yauru man from Broome with over 40 years' experience in Indigenous development. He says steps are being made in the right direction, but there's still work to be done to ensure lasting change.
0: We need to consolidate the relationship with the government in terms of their current intent to make sure that there is the actual impact coming out of what uh, those commitments are uh, will be. Um, so there's a, there's a still a, bit, a fair bit of water to go under the bridge in terms of negos- negotiating uh, what that policy framework might look like. Um, so I think this is a really good start.
2: Police have evicted First Nations protesters occupying land designated for development at a former Aboriginal reserve near Brisbane. Temporary homes were bulldozed at the Debing Creek site in the early morning, sparking scaffolds between protesters and security guards. Developer Evie Jennings bought the land seven years ago with plans to build a multi-million dollar housing development and ordered the operation to remove protesters. The developer says it has all the necessary approvals to do so, including the support of some traditional owners. But protesters claim the land is a massacre site and should be preserved. One of the protesters, Jody Williams, says they were not shown any documents to prove the legality of the eviction when police moved in, when police moved into into the area.
3: We were given no legal documents and we were told that they were here on behalf of A. V. Jennings. So I till this I still haven't seen any form of legal document just have us removed.
2: The South Australian government will lead an inquiry into the authenticity of Aboriginal art following allegations non-Indigenous arts arts workers have interfered with works by Indigenous artists. In April, the Australian newspaper published allegations that non-Indigenous workers from APY Art Centre Collective had painted on works by Indigenous artists. The collective has strenuously denied the accusations, saying they are false and defamatory the Federal and Northern Territory governments who also work on the review. South Australian Premier Peter Malinoskas says the terms of reference have yet to be worked out, but there will be a defined scope to the inquiry.
1: Specifically looking at the provenance uh, of Aboriginal art, uh, particularly uh, in South Australia and the Northern Territory, to ensure that its integrity is um, true uh, when it goes into the marketplace or into various galleries. It's not intended to be a comprehensive system-wide
2: review of Aboriginal art per se, but specifically looking at the integrity of it uh, in light of the allegations that have been made. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has confirmed the Quad leaders' meeting will not go ahead in Sydney next week. It comes after President Biden cancelled his upcoming visits to Papua New Guinea and Australia due to the ongoing debt ceiling negotiations in Washington. The leaders of Australia, the US, Japan and India were scheduled to meet in Sydney on May 24 for the Quad meeting with Mr Biden also due to address federal parliament the day before. Mr Albanese says he's looking forward to seeing the president soon.
0: We though will be having that discussion between Quad leaders in Japan. I thank Prime Minister Kishida for his invitation for me to attend. Uh, The G7. it is appropriate that we talk. Uh, The Quad is an important body, and we want to make sure that it occurs at leadership level, and we'll be having that discussion over the weekend.
2: Federal Industry Minister Ed Husic says the gold-plated multinational megaphone of the gas industry won't make the federal government ease off on accelerating renewable energy investments. Mr. Husich says there is clearly a role for gas in the energy in in the energy transition, with many industries still relying on fossil fuels. He says new supply from Narrabri in New South Wales and the Bitterloog gas field, southeast of Darwin, will meet domestic needs while renewable energy generation gets built.
3: I know that that's not everyone's cup of tea, but I imagine that in the interim, those those fields will meet domestic needs. We will get there, factoring in all these things, and we are determined to make sure we send the strongest possible signal to industry that we need to work together to make that happen.
2: Fire and Emergency New Zealand fans say they'll soon secure the burnt-out Lofa's lodge for police to begin their investigation into the deadly hostel fire. The 92-room Wellington facility caught fire in the early hours of Tuesday, prompting a frenzied evacuation. At least six people were killed in the blaze. Since the fire was doused six hours after it began, fence technical teams have been working to secure the building, spokesman Bruce Stubb tells TV New
3: Zealand. Uh, what we were doing last night was um, ensuring that the, the scene is secure. Uh, we did some uh, structural uh, work to ensure that when we hand over to police later this morning, we can support them and our own fire investigation team to do the next stage, which is that further in-depth investigation.
2: Ukraine's Air Force says Russia's massive missile attack on Kiev overnight has likely depleted Russia's arsenal of advanced weaponry, given that many state-of-the-art Russian missiles were shot down. Ukrainian Air Force spokesman Yuri Egnat says the attack has been characterized by the use of a large number of Kinzhal aeroballistic missiles, of which he said Russia did not have many. Mr Egnat says the missile barrage on the Ukrainian capital was symbolic as well as strategic.
0: It is clear that the capital has always been and is such a priority target for the enemy because there are essential state objects and important infrastructure objects, and there's a certain symbolism in this. It's clear that the enemy wants to strike at the very heart of the country and thus keep the entire Ukrainian nation in tension. Therefore, today, it was possible to repulse another air attack. The peculiarity of this attack was the use of the KH-47M2 Kinzhal missiles, which were used in large numbers, and definitely all of them were shot down.
2: Asked about Russian claims, a U.S.-made Patriot air defense system was destroyed in the attack, he declined to comment. Meanwhile, South African President Siri Ramaphosa says Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky have agreed to meet a group of African leaders to discuss a potential peace plan. Details of the plan have not been released, but Ukraine's stated position for any peace deal is that all Russian troops must must withdraw from its territory. The peace plan is backed by African leaders of Senegal, Uganda, Egypt, the Republic of, of the Congo and Zambia. Mr. Ramaphosa says the success of these meetings depends on how both leaders approach the discussions.
4: My discussions with the two leaders demonstrated that They are both ready to receive African leaders and to have a discussion on how this conflict can be brought to an end. Whether that will succeed or not is going to depend on the discussions that will be held.
2: The Salvation Army says the cost of living crisis is pushing more Australians into extreme poverty. The charity says in the past 12 months, 93% of those seeking their services are struggling to afford the basic necessities, with many living on less than $6 a day after the cost of housing, food and health needs. More than 1,700 Australians were surveyed in the research released as the charity launches its annual fundraiser, the Red Shield Appeal. The goal this year is to raise $37 million to keep 2,000 Salvation Army services running. Major David Collinson says in 20 years with the Salvation Army, he has never seen the level of need so great.
3: But we're seeing people, we're seeing some middle class people that are turning up at our centres who used to give us money, you know. So it's the first time they've had to ask for us for help, but some of them have been donors for 20, 30 years and then they're saying, as tough as it's been for us uh, with interest rate rises etc and now I need some help from the salvos um, what can you do to help us?
2: And to sport in golf, the Australian PGA is confident its tournament can coexist in Queensland alongside a live golf after the state government revealed expansion discussions with Greg Norman are underway. The two million dollar Australian PGA championship has been locked in for Brisbane's Royal Queensland from November twenty-third to twenty-sixth. Queensland's tourism and sports minister Starling Hinch Hinchliffe says he has been talking to Norman about the inclusion of the state in the live golf tournament. PGA Australia chairman Roger Davis says live golf's larger pool of fans means that if Queensland is added to the circuit, then both tournaments will have to learn to coexist now having a look at the weather around the country Brome, sunny 31 perth sunny 26 adelaide partly cloudy 16 melbourne partly cloudy as well 15 degrees hobart partly cloudy 13 Albury-Wodonga, mostly sunny, 15. Canberra, similar conditions, 14. Wollongong, possible storm and showers, 17 degrees. Sydney, showers, 18. Newcastle, showers, 19. Brisbane, mostly sunny, 23. Townsville, partly cloudy, 27. Keynes partly cloudy as well, and a top of 29. Alice Springs, sunny day, 21 degrees. Darwin, mostly sunny, 33. And the West Strait Islands, a cloudy day ahead, and a top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News.
5: NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or any time online.
2: I am Patron Tungandami and you're listening to United TV Radio, coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Wednesday afternoon. Still to come, conversation with the two protagonists of the revival of Ghana language, which had ceased to be spoken on a daily basis in the 1890s, with the last fluent speaker passing away in 1927. Now, Ghana is nearly fully revived and has dozens of speakers. Also, in the program, we'll discover the latest developments in science and technology with Wiradjuri Woman and Science and Technology editor Ray Johnston. But first, the latest stories are shared with us by NITV.
5: Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio.
2: And now to our stories shared by NITV. 32 Aboriginal people have commenced civil proceedings against the New South Wales state government claiming a lack of duty of care over allegations of child physical and sexual abuse in Burke five decades ago. The majority claimed they were physically abused in the far western town by the then senior welfare officer with the Aborigines Welfare Board, Eddie Cockburn. And a warning, this story contains a graphic description of abuse. Carla Grant reports.
4: David Wilson, who goes by his Barkindji name, Marbuck, alleges he was molested by the welfare officer more than 50 years ago.
2: I can't put this behind. This I'll, I will live with now And until my last.
4: Another claimant, who we've given the pseudonym Auntie Jane, wanted her story made public. She allowed us to use her sworn statement, which detailed her allegations, voiced by an actor. Cockburn dragged me into his car and took me to his office in the main street. Cockburn kicked me so hard in the back that my face hit the wall and my nose started bleeding. At least 20 of the 32 claimants have already secured confidential settlements from the New South Wales Government. The state has not accepted any liability in providing the settlements which were not tested to the criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. No finding of fact has ever been made against Mr Cockburn, who died 13 years ago. Lawyers for the claimants say they are using a novel legal approach extending liability of the state for the actions of its employees.
6: These are not some sort of reparation scheme or, or redress scheme uh, claims. These are, this is civil litigation that these people are bringing against the state government. One factor that, that is important is that the state is being held to account and these stories are being told.
4: Eddie Cockburn was neither charged nor convicted of any crime of abuse during his lifetime. His family strongly denies the allegations, saying their father championed Indigenous rights and education Carla Grant, NITV News.
2: Now the full story of uh, the abusing in Burke was aired on uh, Living Black on Monday night. Living Black airs on Monday night at 8.30pm and if you missed that episode or any other episode you can still find them on SBS On Demand. Australian government has been urged to offer a reward for fresh information about the murder of Stacey Thorne in 2007. The Noongar woman's death resulted in a wrongful imprisonment a retrieve and a retrial and evidence that the man convicted of the crime had been framed by police. Karen Cox has more.
0: It's been 16 years since Stacey Thorne's body was found outside her neighbour's lawn. She'd been stabbed more than two dozen times. Today her family are calling for another investigation.
1: We're still in limbo. We don't know what's going to happen. We, do, we want to know what happened to our sister that night. Someone knows what happened to her and we want answers.
0: Ms Thorne's occasional lover, Scott Ostick, was arrested and charged with her murder. Police alleged he wanted her dead because she was pregnant with a child he didn't want. Ostig always maintained his innocence but was tried and sentenced to 25 years jail, serving 12 years before he was released. A retrial found plausible evidence that he was framed, including that evidence had been planted at the scene.
1: We don't believe that her voice has uh, been heard. We don't believe that her story had been heard during that course. Um, It was all in regards to other evidence, other findings or alleged findings.
0: Now a petition to be tabled in State Parliament calls for a range of new tactics to crack the 16-year-old murder mystery with accusations of police corruption. The petition also calls for a coronial inquest to be considered and for two Corruption and Crime Commission reports into the police investigation to be made public as well as a reward for information
4: just come forward Um, after all these years it'll be a big help to us it'll be a big help for Stacey and her baby to rest in peace and hopefully that um, we will have that final
7: healing within our family.
0: While the case is complex for the Thorn family Stacey's loss is a source of ongoing grief Something that won't be resolved until all of the questions have been answered. Karen Cox, NITV News.
2: And the National Women's Rugby League Championships get underway on the on the Gold Coast later this week. And for the All Indigenous First Nations Gems, it's an opportunity to showcase black sporting excellence. Team members have begun their week in camp. By connecting on country and focusing on culture, Tanisha Williams has more.
7: A gathering of culture and connection. The First Nations gems fitting training around a visit to country.
1: For us, in our programs, culture is before the footy. If we can get that culture happening off the field, they'll run through a wall for anybody. So, but the other the other aspect of it is that. That's actually who we are as people. Culture and family come first.
7: Gathering on Yugenbeer country, the squad of 40 players and staff spent the afternoon learning how to make a traditional Aboriginal instrument.
2: Um, These are my soon-to-be clapsticks. (laughs) So I was drawn to these pieces of wood. Um, I just
6: like the patterns in it and the colours, so yeah.
7: Putting their spirit... Into a special keepsake that will remind them of this moment along their football journey. When we have all our women actually connecting, look out, that's a force to be reckoned with, right? At the Women's Rugby League National Championships last year, the Gems won three and drew one out of six matches. This week, 20 of the women in this squad will run out for the First Nations team, while others will represent their respective states. I cannot wait to get out on that field because it's just like, we have so much to show and we have so much like, passion for the game and like, our culture just is just strong. So I can't wait to get out there and I know these girls can't wait. Strengthening bonds as they prepare for battle. Tanisha Williams, NITV News.
5: on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
2: Now it's time to explore the latest developments and discoveries in science and technology with uh, Wiradjuri woman and uh, science and technology editor, Ray Johnston. Welcome to NITV Radio again, Ray.
1: Thank you so much for having me back. Really looking forward to telling you all about the latest in science and technology news
2: for this week. Now, our first story of the week is about... uh, archaeologists uh, who've been able to map hidden northern territory landscapes uh, where first Australians lived more than 60,000 years ago.
1: Yeah, so this is from researchers at Flinders University. They've used some pretty cool tech to look both underground and also from above to look a little bit closer at the Red Lily Lagoon area in West Arnhem Land. Now, they used a method that's called electric resistivity tomography, which is just a fancy way of saying that they can map really large areas of land quickly and cheaply to better understand their ancient history. And the best part about this technology is that they can locate new archaeological sites without disturbing the area there too much. And from this most recent research, they've found some really interesting stuff about how this place was affected when the sea levels rose about 8,000 years ago. Because it turns out that the ocean reached this area, which is now inland, and this fact has big implications for understanding the oldest archaeological site on the continent and also for understanding the rock art in the area, because basically the science looked at the sediments that were buried under the floodplains And they were able to see there how the mangroves grew and how they supported the animals and the marine life in the region, which in turn, of course, influenced the rock art in that area. And they've even discovered that the timing of the rock art, it coincides with changes in the environment, like when freshwater habitats started appearing. And it shows that the art ended up having subjects like fish and, and crocs and birds from those times. So the researchers, they reckon that this changes our understanding of early human occupation in the continent. And this research is obviously a big deal for traditional owners in that area as well. They were co-authors on this study and they say that it's really important for people to know what was happening there thousands and thousands of years ago. So exciting stuff.
2: Yeah, There's also another development uh, worth mentioning this week, shining a light on a dark web and a wildlife trade.
1: Yeah, so there is a lot of wildlife being sold on the internet. This is something that not a lot of people are really aware of. And there was a study done by researchers at the University of Adelaide. And they looked at e-commerce marketplaces, private forums, and messaging apps that are the most popular ways to buy and sell live animals, plants, fungi, like mushrooms, and also their parts and products online. But the researchers, they also checked if wildlife was being traded on the dark web. The dark web is is pretty much known as where all the dodgy stuff happens because it's much harder to track what's going on there and they found even in the short period of time they were researching they found 153 different species being traded there most of the ads they found were for plants and fungi which were mostly advertised for their use as drugs or medicine even animals there were being traded for use as drugs including the colorado river toad which is known for releasing a toxin from its skin that can make you see some pretty crazy stuff i think it's safe to say it's it's a hallucinogen the the skin's toxin there now For now, most of the wildlife is being traded on regular online marketplaces and private forums. So law enforcement, they can focus on those areas. But if things change in the future... We might start to see more wildlife being sold on the dark web where it is harder to track, harder to find who is selling it, where it's all coming from, and it's harder to stop. And Australia is actually part of a group of countries that agreed not to trade endangered species It's called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. That's the name of the group. And the researchers of this study in particular, they say that this country needs to be doing more to collect data and information on the internet trade of wildlife and to be doing more reporting on any illegal trading that they do come across to help really stamp this out.
2: Yeah, and uh, this one is one that I like very much because tourism and tourists are usually uh, viewed in a very negative way, especially when it comes to environmental degradation. But it appears that uh, citizen science projects uh, give tourists a chance to give back to nature.
1: Yeah, this is lovely. So citizen science projects, they're becoming really popular around the world because people are really keen to conserve our natural environment and also to enjoy the great outdoors at the same time. So citizen science projects, they mean that everyday folks can volunteer their time, use things like their mobile phones and web-based data collection to help with vital conservation and ecology efforts. So researchers from Flinders University They are leading a federally funded Passport to Recovery citizen science project. It's on Kangaroo Island, and they're using some really innovative approaches to expand their project both this year and in the year 2024. And they say that tourists and the tourism industry's participation in citizen science is growing. And it's producing some really impactful data on threatened or endangered wildlife in parks and in remote locations and even about marine environments from recreational scuba divers. They're seeing an increasing effort to use tourists in citizen science projects to support environmental management or conservation goals. And there's potential for citizen science tourism to foster even broader awareness of environmental issues, including regenerative uh, tourism experiences for domestic and international tourists. So the benefits of inviting the public to take part, you know, There's the personal growth of the citizens who take part. We get enhanced scientific knowledge and cost savings as well from more participation. And there's the development of that social capital, that feeling that you are part of the community and you're doing something well. So, yeah, let's get the tourists involved as well as the locals and help get on board with some more citizen science projects.
2: And uh, now this one, flood-threatened communities uh, are strengthened by uh, their collective insights. Uh, can you tell us how this uh, happens and how how is that?
1: So the devastating floods in New South Wales and Queensland in 2022, they've given us some really valuable insights into how to prepare for and respond to disasters in the future. There were researchers from the Natural Hazards Research Australia team. They teamed up with Macquarie University, the University of Southern Queensland and the Queensland University of Technology. So all local unis and research organisations in those areas that were also affected by floods. And they've conducted some independent research on the community experiences of the floods they interviewed 192 residents affected by the floods and they surveyed another 430 residents online. And this research captures the unique experiences of the people that were impacted by the floods. And out of that research, it suggests that issues like community connection and communication, local capacity for action, flexibility in disaster adaptation, and also personal control over decision-making. They all have a big impact on how people are affected by natural disasters. So this report, this provides really valuable information that can be used to improve flood safety across the country And it's going to inform strategies to manage severe weather in the future as well. So a big thank you to everyone who took part in this research, who was interviewed for it and was surveyed for it, because it will help strengthen communities in the future that are faced with similar disasters.
2: Ray Johnston, thank you very much for bringing to us more interesting, entertaining and informative uh, developments in science and technology once again this week.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here. Join NITV
5: Radio on Facebook.
2: Welcome back. Now, the Ghana language ceased to be a daily language in the 1890s with the last speaker passing away in 1927, but... Now, Ghana has been nearly fully revived with dozens of speakers. Amongst key people who contributed and are still working on the revival of Ghana language are Robert Amory, Associate Professor at the University of Adelaide, and Susie Greenwood, a PhD candidate. And ATV Radio Sarka Pekova sat down with them to learn more about the Ghana language revival project.
6: The Ghana language is a language of Adelaide Plains and it's now being revitalized. Associate Professor of University of Adelaide, Robert I. has been researching the language for more than two decades now. He said that the Ghana language was long written off as a dead language, though Ghana people prefer to think of it as have been sleeping. The last speaker of the language has died 100 years ago. The closest thing to a dictionary before now was written by German missionaries in the 1930s who documented about 2,000 Kana words. Speaking the language was once forbidden by white Australians and Kana all but faded from use by 1960s. But through dedicated collaborative work, the language has now been revived. And I'm now joined by Professor Robert Amery and his colleague from University of Adelaide, PhD candidate Susie Greenwood. Hello and thank you both so much for joining us on NITV Radio. Hi, Sarka. Hi, Sarka. Thank you so much for talking to us. And I will start by Professor Rob Amery. Rob, you have been studying the Karna language for over two decades now. But you started working in indigenous communities as a health worker back in the 1980s. What led you to, to work with languages?
3: I find languages very interesting. I, because I went to a country high school in New South Wales, I never had an opportunity to study another language at school. I learned from Indonesian in my final year at uni and ever since then got very, very interested in languages. Then when I went to work in the Kimberley back in 1980, In those days, most of the old people had very, very little English, maybe just a few words. And it was very important for me to try and learn Bugaja in order to communicate in the health field. The blind doctor who, who used to visit by his own admission said that he practiced veterinary medicine. I can't blame him because he's visiting so many different communities, speaking different languages, but uh, that was the state of healthcare delivery in those days and probably hasn't changed a great deal to this day.
6: Mm. And what led you then to the south and to the Ghana language?
3: found myself here because my wife comes from Adelaide and having learned some strong languages up north, I was keen to put that, and, and having studied linguistics at ANU, I was keen to put what I knew into practice and was invited to some Gartendree workshops by Brian Kirk, who was working at uh, what's now UDSA, uh, running some Gartendree and Naranga workshops. And so I got to know some local Aboriginal people through those workshops. And you know, one thing led to another, and uh, I've been working with Ghana for over 30 years now.
6: Mm. Yeah. And uh, Suzy, what led you to study uh, this particular language?
8: So my journey has been very different to
6: Rob's. In fact, um, I've only been
8: in Australia for uh, just over 12 years now. And prior to that, uh, I was actually working in IT back in the UK. I always had a love of languages, um, but never had the opportunity to study languages beyond school. Uh, Got immersed in IT and programming and that kind of thing. So it was only when I moved out to Australia with my husband, that sort of better future for the kids and and better weather and better work opportunities that I had the opportunity to formally study languages and linguistics at the University of Adelaide. I was fortunate enough to um, find the support of Professor Amory to be my supervisor. Um, And he mentored me and um, I had the opportunity to get involved with working on the Ghana Dictionary Project, which actually aligns quite nicely with um, my own PhD interest, which is actually on the revived language of Cornish, Mm -hmm. which is where I was living in Cornwall back in the UK. So it's a, a very interesting counterpoint to that, seeing the different context and how language revival works on different sides of the world.
6: Mm-hmm. And yeah, let's talk about how to rebuild a language. Rob, you've been working on on this for twenty years, and you're working on materials from the nineteenth century. Can you please tell us a little bit more about you know the history or how how do you work with these materials?
3: Um, before we go there, Sarah, I might just go back to your introduction. Where you were saying that Ghana people were forbidden to speak Ghana. I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. Tokaman, missionary Tokaman, was forbidden to continue preaching in Ghana, uh, and certainly the Piltawadli School, which had been taught by Sherman and by Clause, supported by Tokaman, uh, taught in the Ghana language, was closed by Governor Gray, and those children relocated to the native school establishment on Kintor Avenue, which was strictly English-only dormitories. The policy was to deliberately separate the children from their elders, from their parents. It's not quite as simple as saying uh, the Ghana people were forbidden to speak their language. Hmm. I mean, those policies were disastrous for the Ghana language and the reason why the language... Um, ceased to be spoken, probably had much more to do with the plummeting population due to introduced diseases uh, than anything else. And the remaining Ghana being uh, forcibly removed from their country, uh, sent over to Penindi in Angola country, and from there to, to Point Maclay and Point Pierce in Narendra and Naranga country. I, I don't know that they were kind of forbidden as such to speak their language.
6: Hmm. But, yeah, certainly it was really hard for them.
3: Oh, absolutely.
6: And so, how much, how many materials, how much do we know about the language?
3: Well, there's about 20 primary sources, people who collected uh, words. And in the case of the German missionaries, uh, a lot of phrases and sentences and some uh, very short texts. Altogether, we've got three, three and a half thousand words, probably from those primary sources. The German missionaries were the only ones to record a grammar and some others like uh, William White recorded quite a few terms for plants and insects in particular, which uh, the German missionaries missed. There was a yes, a surveyor's assistant, who uh, took particular note of a number of uh, place names and being a surveyor's assistant, he gave the section numbers. So we have a very precise location for those. Uh, Cawthorne had a very interest, strong interest in Ghana artifacts. So, a number of artifact terms which no one else recorded have been recorded by Cawthorne. So, different people had their own kind of interests and specialties, but the vast majority of what we know was recorded by those German missionaries. And as I said before, they, they were the only ones to record a Ghana grammar. Mm-hmm. But without what the uh, information that they recorded, we really couldn't do very much with the Ghana language.
6: Mm. And so how do you work now?
3: Uh, Well, we've produced a range of pretty good resources, uh, a comprehensive learner's guide, the dictionary, which is uh, quite comprehensive in terms of drawing on the source material that we had, and um, the Ghana Alphabet book, uh, we've got a lot of online resources now, some games, Pack of Cards, which uh, Susie's son has turned into an um, online game of solitaire on the web, uh, as well as a Kaurna version of Wordle, uh, which we call Warradal. A Pilda Waddley puppet show with um, a number of puppets. Pilda the possum, who speaks both Ghana and English. And Purika, uh, Magpie, And um, Kunguna, the kookaburra. And Kula, the koala, who tries to speak Ghana and makes lots of mistakes. <laughs> Um, and we use that humor generated to kind of make uh, language memorable.
2: And that was uh, Robert Amri, associate professor at the University of Adelaide, who has been researching the Ghana language for more than uh, two decades, and his colleague, University of Adelaide PhD candidate Susie Greenwood, talking to NITV Radio's Sharka Bekova
5: dot com dot au slash nitv radio
2: Now, as we edge towards the end of uh, today's program, I'd like to invite you to follow us on uh, social media platform, especially on uh, Facebook. I also like to invite you to check our website sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio. We constantly update this website with uh, new material, some of which never makes it uh, to the airwaves. That's all for From NITV Radio, this Wednesday afternoon, Bertrand Tungandame Ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandame, thanking you for staying with us and wishing you a beautiful afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.